If you've got a Bible with you, please turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. Funny enough, the last time we preached 1 Corinthians 15, it was Tom O'Toole that preached it here at Revelation Church. So um, I do feel slightly intimidated as a result of that. But I will, I will carry on as if I'm not. Um, what we're looking at over these five weeks are what, what you could describe as the, the three eternal dynamics of, of the Christian faith. Faith, hope and love. Um, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. He says, when all's said and done, there's three things that will remain. Faith, hope and love. And um, I explained a bit about that. It's kind of a surprising thing to say. I explained a bit about that um, last week. So if you want to just... Uh, explore that some more, you can listen to last week's sermon but that's what he says and um, we looked at faith last week, we're going to spend two weeks on hope and then two weeks on love Um, uh, the reality is this is that the early church were on the edge of their seat in anticipation for the return of Christ it was the subject of conversation it was actually in some of the churches that are written through in the Bible, there's a lot of controversy around the return of Christ. Uh, in some churches, some people have come in and said, he's already returned. Other churches, they say things like, it's not going to happen. And it's a bit of a shame when you get that kind of controversy, but at least it meant they were talking about it. When was the last time you had an invigorating conversation with a fellow Christian about the return of Christ? When was the last time you said, you know, I can't wait. And he said, what, what, what? He said, Jesus is coming. Do, do we live like that? One of my observations is, is that, that this is probably one of the marks of the early church that we are least like. That we're not gripped with his return. It might be that life is too good for us. Life is too easy for us in the West. That might, that might be why as soon as the pressure comes in, that's very often when people begin to think, I hope there's more than just this. A friend of mine shared very honestly recently that it wasn't until it wasn't until both of his children were born with serious disabilities that he really began to seriously grapple with eternal hope. This is a this is a this is a Christian, this is a pastor. It wasn't until then that he really started to look forward to the return of Jesus. It's a very honest admission, I thought. I want us to look at it together, um, and it's, it's, it's chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians where Paul really unpacks, really unpacks it. But before we get into the text, I think there's probably two questions I've got to ask, answer in order for, to take as many, with, as many of you with me as I can. And the first question is this, isn't it all a bit too fantastic? Oh, I'll use that word fantastic in its traditional sense, fantasy. Isn't it all just a little bit too out there? Aren't we genuinely a bit naive to believe in some kind of blissful afterlife? I want to I hit that one head on. I want to ask that question and try my best to answer it. Because um, I think actually it's one of those things which at first appearances it can look that way because we live in a very cynical world. But actually, as soon as it's, when you just dig around, it's, it, I, think, I think the answer to that is no, not at all. I'll show you why. There are certain longings that are wrapped up with the return of Jesus. Longings like the defeat of death. That death will be no more when Jesus returns. Longings like no more disease, no more decay. 
No more pain. Genuine longings. Longings and ways of thinking whereby there's no more suffering. Now it strikes me that when I read newspaper, I watch telly and just live my general life, I find those longings are very much alive in people in 21st century England. Very much. The longing for eternal youth. It's very present. What you've got to do is go to the cosmetic section of Boots and see the uh, shelf after shelf of anti-aging cream. What is that? I mean, it's crazy, really. We all know we're going to get old. We all know we're decaying outwardly. We all know that we can't really stop it. And yet we will do all we can. There are now numbers of people that have frozen themselves. Well, they didn't do it themselves. They got someone to freeze them. Uh, so, that, so that when we've finally discovered how we can live forever, they can be unfrozen and they won't die. Uh, this, is, uh, this is real. This is, th- people live with this stuff. Some of there will be numbers of you in this hall that really struggle with getting old. The thought of it, the concept of it, you know, you don't want to look at yourself when there's UV lights going on, you know, you don't do that because it freaks you out. That's, that's pretty common. Or what about death? It is the strangest thing the way we respond to death. If there's one thing in common with all of us that have been born, it's this we're going to die. And yet, look at the way we are at funerals. We weep and we wail and we cry, even if it's someone who had a really long and wonderful life. Even if, it's, even if it's someone who was a believer and we're confident they're with the Lord, we're weeping and we're crying. Why? Because deep in our DNA, I believe we know that death is an imposter, death is an enemy, death is not part of God's original creation. I mean, you'd, still, you'd have thought we would have grown out of this being sad about death thing by now. Surely. And yet we haven't. Suffering. Suffering is one of those things where people get so vehement, you know, particularly, you know, even when you talk to people who don't believe in God, one of the biggest protests that there can't be God is what about all the suffering in the world? It's interesting. That tells me that deep inside all of us, we know that it shouldn't be like this, that life shouldn't be a life of suffering. My point is this, is that this kind of naivety, if you want to call it that, is hardwired into every one of us. And I believe it's for good reason. It's that we were not made to suffer, we were not made to die, we were not made to decay, but it's the result of our disobedience to God, our falling into sin through Adam, which is why we experience life like this. And that desire for paradise regained is not fantastical, it's rooted in the reality of who we are. So I don't think it is naive and I don't think it is fantastic. There's another question I've got to answer and it's this. Okay, well even if that's the case, It's been 2,000 years now, and life seems to just really pretty much go on just the same. Christ's return. Isn't it time we admitted that we got it wrong? Isn't it time we said, come on, if the early church on the edge of their seat in AD 60, AD 70, how can we still be saying it's going to happen? Surely it just, everyone got it wrong, even Jesus got it wrong. Well, I can answer you this one directly from the Bible, which is great. Because very early on, this is what was written. Which really helps us from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 3 to 4. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But don't overlook this one fact, Peter says, 
Beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, even back then there was scoffing and there was predictions of scoffing and the whole idea of people saying, well, it's just the same, life goes on. Come on, you can't really believe in a new age to come. You can't really believe he's going to return. And now we look at him and we say, it's 2,000 years. And Peter says, well, kind of it's 2,000 years. It's also two days. Because with the Lord, 1,000 years is as a day. So for the Lord, it's, it's not really been that long. So Jesus can legitimately say, I'm coming soon. And come 2,000 years later and still be true to his word. He doesn't see it like you and I do. So I think it's important to just engage with these questions that may be in our minds around the return of Jesus. The Bible deals with these things. The Bible addresses them. The Bible isn't, isn't uh, afraid of facing up to these questions that will be in our minds. And it has answers for us. Okay. So I wanted to do that just to give us a way in to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, it's a very dense chapter, and really, Paul, I, I think, is slightly more repetitive than normal, which is why if I just read through this chapter and preached it verse by verse, it would, be a little, it would feel a little bit repetitive. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to point out to you the four main things of this chapter, do two things this week, two things next week. I was going to say, is that okay? But there's no point, so I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. <laughs> Number one, the first thing is this, the utter vanity of the Christian life if there is no resurrection. It is a waste of time. Number two, the central plank of Adam and Jesus. Number three, the how of resurrection. How is it going to happen? What's it going to be like? Number four, the end of this age and the defeat of death. Cool, eh? So we're going to look, Paul teaches about all these things in chapter 15. This week we're going to be looking at the utter vanity of the Christian life if there's no resurrection and the central plank of Adam and Jesus and I really need God's help. So let's pray. Father, thank you that I have the privilege of sharing your words to these people and Lord, I know that you can, you can take these words and do incredible things to people's lives and people's hearts. So we just commit this time to you now and say, Lord, please, please, can you enable us to be gripped by the truth of your word? Touched, moved, changed. Please help me to speak in a manner worthy of your word. And please help those listening, listening in a way that is worshipful. Give them ears to hear what you're saying, Lord, I pray, with this sermon for them. And sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the utter vanity of the Christian life if there is no resurrection. When I was first a Christian, I was part of a team in my church and we would go out on cold evenings and knock on people's doors that we didn't know and say to them, do you want to talk about Jesus? Most of them said no, but we would do it anyway. And I was teamed up one night with a friend of mine called Brenda. And we were talking and she was, she'd been a Christian a couple of years, me a couple of months. And she said to me something like this. She said, do you ever wonder like, if it's really true? <laughs> I said, yeah, I do. I said, but I'll tell you what, my life is so much better now that I know Jesus. Even if it isn't, it doesn't really matter. I've now realised that I was completely wrong in everything I said to Brenda. <laughs> 
that, I mean, praise God that my life was so better because, you know, Jesus really didn't, he didn't just, you know, if you get saved, all of us get poured out of the same spiritual situation, i.e. death and darkness and into life and light. But also just everything else about who I was in my life was so crippled that when Jesus saved me, it was, it was a very, very dramatic thing. And so I was very aware of, of, of the wonder of this new life. And yet Paul says something, perhaps the most shocking thing. I don't know, he says this in verse 19 of chapter 15. He says, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Did you hear that? If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, if it's just for the here and now, if it's not beyond the grave, we are to be pitied more than any people. Wow. That's counter-cultural even in the Christian life. I mean, this cuts right across this whole thing of God is just going to make your life totally amazing in every way in this life. That doesn't fit with what Paul's saying. Sorry. Just trying to keep it biblical. Paul is fixated with the, the idea of futility and vanity. All through his letters you find it. In this one chapter you find it six times he, uh, he uses the word. I'll just show you so you can follow it and so you can see where it's going. Verse 2, Paul says this, chapter 15. He, he says, um, I want to, oh, verse 1, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Verse 10, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Verses 14 to 19, which is the main bit we're going to focus on. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is vain and you're still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, believers who have died, they've perished. If in this life only we've hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then finally in verse 58 he says this, Therefore my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in the Lord your labour is not in vain. For Paul this is huge. For Paul, it's central. Mind you, I suppose if you've been beaten with rods five times, if you've, been, if you've received 40 lashes with the whips minus one, I think that was three times, if you've been shipwrecked and spent the whole night in the open sea, if you've been hounded around the Mediterranean by people wanting to kill you, maybe your perspective would change a little bit on this age and the next. My honest experience is that as a believer and as I've gone through seasons of temptation, seasons of trial, seasons of pressure, when numbers of times I, thought, I would have thought to myself, it's going to be a lot easier just to run away. It's at that moment you begin to think you have to really grapple with, what do I believe? What do I really believe? Paul says something really interesting in this passage. He's reflecting on his lifestyle. He's reflecting on the sufferings he's faced. And he says this, he says in verse 32, What do I gain, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? In ancient times, it was common to refer to the anger of men and the, the enraged men as beasts. 
who I bought with the beasts in Ephesus. He says, if the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's no resurrection. Do you know what? Let's just pursue pleasure with all that we are, because tomorrow we die. I often find cows and sheep quite fixating. <laughs> I, don't go, I don't go to the country much, but I look at them and I think, you literally do that all day. You literally stand there and eat grass all day. Honestly, and I think to myself, is that it? Now, I know there are only animals, you know, I know they're different from us, but I think, literally, you seem fine doing that. And then I look at this and Paul says, if the, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I think, you know, I think a lot of people are actually just like that. It's more sophisticated. The recipes are more sophisticated. But you know what? Fundamentally, it's about when am I going to eat. Fundamentally, it's about what am I going to eat today? What am I going to drink today? And it's just, it is so far from what we were made for. And I like food and all that. I'm not, this isn't an anti-food message. <laughs> but it's like, what's, what is driving your life? If it's simply really just the pursuit of pleasure, if it's just this life, then, then your mentality is so far from a Christian mentality. You need to have a revolution in your mind. An absolute revolution. You see, to be filled with the Christian hope is like, genuinely, you are in anticipation of the next stage. Genuinely, you can find yourself saying things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Wow. It's challenging, isn't it? But this is the mentality of the apostle. This is the mentality he was trying to teach into the early church. And this is the mentality God would have for us. Because I tell you now, if you do not live with a sense of genuine hope for the age to come, you will buckle when it comes to sacrifice. You just won't be able to. There will be nothing in you that is motivated enough to sacrifice, to pay the price. It's sobering, but it's so vitally important. Just look at Jesus as a model. I mean, what a life. The, we hold it up as the most exemplary life a human has ever lived. And it is. And it was. But it was a life of pressure. It was a life of opposition. It was a life of misunderstanding and confusion on others' part, not his. It was, a life, it was a life of betrayal. He was betrayed. It was a life where he was deserted by his friends. It was a, life, it was a short life. It was a life where, 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 that was lonely at times. He never knew the joys of marriage, the joys of children. It was a life that was cut off in a painful death. Pretty much on paper, a lot of the things that people dread about life was this man's life. And yet we are told, for the joy set before him, as we heard earlier, he endured the cross and he despised the shame and he was able to look at all those things and say, I, I will face you. Why? For the joy set before him when he's reunited with his bride in glory forever. It's God's will to make those of us who love Jesus more and more into his image. Which means increasingly we'll say, for the joy set before me, yes. For the joy set before me, yeah, I'll face that. For the joy set before me, I'll go through that. For the joy set before me, I'll go without that. I'm not talking about a life of asceticism where you're constantly saying no to everything for the sake of it. Not at all. Jesus had a reputation as a, as a, a glutton and a drunkard because he was always at parties. Okay, I'm not talking about just a life of hiding yourself away and closing everything down. But I am talking about a life of picking up your cross daily and following after Jesus. It's real. It is real. He bore the cross, the one and only cross. But he does call us to bear our cross. 
I want to prepare you for that and just help you grapple with that and say the only thing that will enable you to do that is a strong hope. That's what we see here. If our Christianity is just a here and now Christianity, just that Jesus fulfilled my dreams for this life, Christianity, we will come a cropper. And I absolutely believe God puts dreams and visions in us and all of that and has a wonderful purpose for us in this age and all of that. I'm, I'm up with all of that. But I'm wary of an idealistic approach to life in this age. It's funny, isn't it? When Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, his reason is a bit like, have you ever read it? He doesn't say, don't worry about tomorrow. You know, God's with you. It'll be all right. He doesn't say that. He says, don't worry about tomorrow because each day has got enough trouble of its own. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever stopped to notice his actual... Jesus, you're, bit, you know, you're right today. You, know, you could have thought that if he wasn't... You're just being pessimistic. No, he's being realistic about the pressures of this age. Don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Well, there'll be enough on your plate today to deal with. That's what Jesus says. When we get to grips with this, we become robust. We become strong in Christ. We become, we become uh, able to grow through the pressure and grow through the difficulties and grow through the opposition and become mature. And that is God's plan for us. We'll be a mature people. So that's the first thing. It, Christianity is utterly vain if there is no resurrection. The second thing is this whole, I call it the central plank of Adam and Jesus. And I'm sure when I said it, you all thought, what's that? Not very inspiring. Get on to the third point. Okay, no, that's next week. The central plank of Adam and Jesus. All, all through this passage, particularly in two spots, Paul really zooms in on this relationship between Adam and Jesus. And if, you're, if you don't have an understanding of the part Adam plays in, biblically and in humanity and Jesus, then you can just think it really seems very random. It's actually so important for you understanding yourself, understanding your own position before God, how the gospel works. It's really important, so please do travel with me on this. Please do uh, track with me and, and don't, don't back away from it because it seems a bit weird. Let's look at this together. The way Paul views humanity is this, is that we are a product of Adam. That's the way he views it. That we are not just randomly, we haven't just sort of randomly arrived. We've got a past as a people, as a race. We have a past. And our past is sourced in a man called Adam and a woman called Eve. Biblically, these are real historical figures. They are not figures of fantasy. And Paul understands that all humanity naturally is in Adam. He uses this phrase, that you're an Adam, that I'm an Adam. That we are born somehow with some kind of association with Adam. That he is over us as our, that theologians call it, as our federal head. It means that he kind of represents us. All that is true of him spiritually is true of us naturally. We are in him. Let me give you some, just some illustrations just to try and earth it a bit in case it sounds really, really alien to you. There was a season a few years ago when the uh, United States of America, uh, their president was um, George Bush Jr. And it was around the time of Iraq and Afghanistan and all of that. And, and George Bush was making so many clangers in terms of foreign policy. And the way you, some of those things he said about other nations, it was so embarrassing. And so, uh, so it was, you, know, you couldn't watch it without cringing. But this man represented a whole nation. 
As a result, many, many people in that nation, were, they themselves felt humiliated and embarrassed. Because of this man who was representing them, saying these things about other nations and the language he was using and getting, it, or getting all his facts wrong. It was utterly humiliating. As a result, the nation felt humiliated. And after this season, there was, a, uh, there was, um, there was a, 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 an election and he was no longer voted in. Now what happened there? That man was the head of that nation. As a result of things, he said it reflected on that nation. Because of certain ways that he was, it had a direct impact on them. We are used to this principle. It works on a much smaller level, on a family level. I mean, this is a bit of a bizarre illustration, but to me at least it's vivid. Imagine that you are a minor, you are under 18, you are living at home with your parents, and one of your parents decides to run around the block naked. Just says, blow it. Bad enough. And runs around the block naked. Question. Does that reflect on you at all? How do you feel? How do you feel? But you didn't run around the block naked. Why would you feel embarrassed? What happens in that scenario is you become the kid. You're, oh, you're that. You're the kid of, you're no longer, even if you had a name. You're no, it's no longer your name. You're that kid. You're the kid whose dad ran around the block naked. Your whole identity gets wrapped up in this ridiculous scenario. Why? Because what that, what your parent did reflects on you. The Bible says that we have, a, we have a, a parent, his name is Adam, he is marked by disobedience, he is marked by death, death through, the, through his sin, he brought death into creation. That's, that's what we're faced with, that's, that's, that's how it works throughout the Gospels. Paul t- looks at it in Romans 5 and it comes through here again. Adam, head of humanity, naturally. Jesus comes and he's referred to in this passage as the last Adam. He is the head of a new humanity. That's how it works. And so all that is true of Jesus reflects on those who are in him. So Jesus is perfectly righteous. So if you're in Jesus, his righteousness is perfectly reflected onto you. You are right before God. If you're a Christian, that's how you're right before God. Not because you've straightened your act out. Not because you don't do that anymore. But because you have turned away from every other effort at saving yourself or being saved any other way and you've turned to Jesus and you're in Him now. And all that He is reflects on you. His holiness, His righteousness, His sonship. You become a son. Why? Because you're in the Son. That's how it works. So now when I read this, hopefully you'll understand how it works in regards to the resurrection. Because the particular uh, trouble that was happening among the Corinthians wasn't so much that Jesus wasn't raised, but it was, it was more about, you're not going to be raised. This is it for you. You're not going to be raised from the dead once you've died. This resurrection thing is not true. And so let's look at how this thing rolls together. So let's look at verse 20 of um, chapter 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now let me just stop there and do three verses one at a time just to help you understand because the language is unusual. Paul says Christ has been raised from the dead. Now I want you to, now he's trying to say I'm going to now show you that because Christ has been raised from the dead you also will be. It's inevitable that you will be. Christ has been raised from the dead and then he describes him with this word. The first fruits. 
Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a term the Bible uses for believers who have died. So Jesus is the first fruits of believers who have died. Now, what does this mean? Well, in the in the Bible times, when you when, it was a harvest term. When you got your first fruits, you, the, the, the first bit of harvest, you would take it and you would give thanks to God with it, and you would offer it back to Him by way of saying thank you, and also saying we are expectant and in, in anticipation of the rest of the wonderful harvest you're going to give to us. The first fruits was a representation; it, it was a sign of what was to come. Jesus here is described as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits of the believing dead. So the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead is a guarantee that the rest of the harvest will come. And the harvest is believers being raised from the dead. It's an order thing in God. Next verse, 21. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. <coughs> So now Paul's saying, we are all aware of the universality of death, we all die. That's not some random thing. That's not just the way it goes. We die because of Adam's sin. It's really important. Just because it happens to all of us, not to just see it as inevitable. No, it's happening because of Adam's sin. That's why we die. That's what he is getting at there. As in, so, as by one man came death, by a man... Jesus has come also the resurrection of the dead. If one man was able to bring death to all humanity through his sin, then it follows that it's perfectly reasonable for another man, through his obedience and righteousness, to bring resurrection to all those who are in him. If you believe that you're you're going to die because of Adam's sin, then you should absolutely believe you'll be raised because of Christ's righteousness. It's just... Perfectly logical. Okay, So if you're embracing that, you're going to embrace that one. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. First is true, and so will be the second. Now we know that you are in Adam by virtue of being born naturally. How do you get into Christ? That's really important. Because if if being in Adam means I'm dead, but being in Christ means I'm going to be raised from the dead, I need to work out, how do I get into Christ? Is it simply like a historical thing? Christ has come now, so now everyone's in Christ. No. Jesus made that really, really clear. In order to enter the kingdom, in order to be into Christ, you need to be born again spiritually. So all those who are born again spiritually, by faith, all those who come and believe in Christ, will receive the resurrection of the dead. That's what Paul is teaching here. First is true, and so will be the second. It's not fantastic. It's not fantasy. I think we tend to look at our current situation, and just because it's all that we've ever known, we just say, well, this is what it is. And then we look at anything that's unfamiliar, and we say, that's so unrealistic. Do you see the logic there? Well, this is just what it is. That's, that's unfamiliar, so it's unrealistic. I want to say it is what it is for a reason. We die because of the sin of Adam. That's why it is what it is. Not just that's what it is. That it's, there's a reason. One man sinned. There's a reason why we're going to be raised from the dead. One man lived perfectly 
for you. One man faced every temptation you could possibly imagine and did not buckle, but held true to God. One man was faithful. One man was willing to absolutely lay down his life for you and for me. One man died on a cross and took in his body the punishment we deserve. One man bled for us, cried out for us, prayed for us and prays for us. Our whole destiny, our whole hope, our whole future hangs on this one man and his name is Jesus. He is a glorious saviour. He is the king of kings. He is the man who has conquered sin. He is the man who has conquered death. He is the man who has conquered every dark power and he loves us. This is, this is what our hope is entirely rooted in. It's Jesus. From beginning to end, it's Jesus. And then I just want to read one more passage where Paul talks about the Adam-Jesus thing one more time. Then I want us to just respond and, and on it. Paul just says this. It's written that the first man, Adam, became a living being. It's pointing back to Genesis 2, where we're told God formed the man from the earth, breathed his life into him, and he became a living being. That's Adam. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. It's similar, but it's different. One received life from God and became alive, the other gives life to us. He gives life. It's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, Adam. The second man is from heaven, Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Listen to this now. I want to end on this verse. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The fact that you bear the image of the man of dust is a spiritual matter. The fact that you are human is a spiritual issue. Okay? It's not just, again, it's not just some uh, uh, accidental... Uh, random event, oh look, I'm here, I'm a human. No, the fact that you bear Adam's image, who bore the image of God, is a work of God. Please can you reflect on that? Please can you take that to heart? Please understand that, because then you will realise that, as first the natural, then the spiritual, as you have borne the image, the man of dust, brothers and sisters, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who are looking to him, those of us who will say, Jesus and Jesus alone is my hope, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will look next week at how that will happen. We'll look next week at, uh, at the process of that, what it will be like, Paul answering questions that they've been asking him. We'll get into all of that next week. But suffice to say today that because of our hope in Christ and him alone, there's a day that is coming where we will shake off all that is perishable, all that is mortal, all that is corrupt. We will not shake off our humanity. We will be forever human. Jesus has redeemed humanity by becoming human. We will be human forever. We will be physical forever. We won't float around. We will be physical forever. But all that is perishable, corrupt, decaying, we will take off. And we'll be clothed with a brand new body. Exciting, eh? <laughs> so, questions like, will we recognise each other? 
course. Of course. When God needed us to get in our mother's room, he was making us forever. He made you to live with him for eternity. He's not going to morph you into some strange, nebulous, abstract thing. Like someone with a sheet over them, holes for the eyes for eternity. No, no. You will be more you than you've ever been. But free from sin. Free from darkness. Reflecting perfectly the image of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I know it's big stuff, it's panoramic, it's almost, to be honest, a little bit too scary to even talk about. You think, how can I, how can I present this you know, in a way that brings the glory, but it's still able to connect with it? It's huge. It's huge. But I guess I'm just going to trust that the Holy Spirit will take these simple words and we'll let them catch in our heart. And, 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 and we'll let them grow and grow in us so we become increasingly a people of hope. Yeah. That hope is one of the things that marks us out. It's clearly different. You may be here and you might think, I don't know that hope. I don't know that at all. You, you, really, you don't have that hope. You don't have a sense of knowing, assurance, you've got eternal life. I tell you, by the mercy of God, you can know it. By the mercy and grace of God, by, through Jesus Christ, you can know it. We don't know it because we're sort of special in and of ourselves. We've just received Jesus Christ, the gift that he is from the Father. And if you want to receive that gift today, you can do so simply by just... If you turn to him, even though you can't see him, just turn to him in your heart. He will meet you. He will, and he will implant new life in you. And he will begin an eternal work where you will never be the same again. Amen? Amen. Amen.